0: Good evening, and congrats on half a century. Greetings from your slightly older sister church, Evangelical Christian Church of Dubai. There are a number of us here from ECC Dubai who are uh, uh, celebrating with you. Now, our 50th was in March, and isn't it amazing that both of these congregations were founded 50 years ago, right around the time of the founding of the very nation. For the past past 50 years, you and we have been partners in the gospel in uh, encouraging and exceptional ways. Our affection for you, it should be obvious. Uh, In imitation, we even changed our name recently to ECCD. To more closely resemble yours. We apologize for any confusion this may cause in the future. You know that our relationship with you, our partnership in the gospel, goes back before me and Aubrey. It goes back before Cam and my predecessors in uh, Dubai. It actually goes all the way back to the Oasis Hospital that we saw up on the projector earlier in Ain. The founder of your congregation, Carl Scherbeck, and the founder of our church, Leon Blosser, they were both team missionaries who arrived in the Terusial States in 1966 and 1964, respectively. Uh, they were good friends, Carl and Leon. Uh, they were both fluent in the local dialect. They were both known and respected by the rulers. Leon had uh, was on personal terms with five of the seven sheikhs. They both served on that hospital compound in the early days. Uh, In fact, wearing many different hats, they were involved in the early days in designing and building a lot of it. And they joked around and had fun, referring to the chapel as Oasis Hospital Baptist. Things were different then, I think. Uh, In one letter between them, June 2, 1969, Carl noted to Leon... He said, the pavement is finally finished on the road to Abu Dhabi. Now it is less than two hours to the airport. Prior to that time, I think it took about four hours to get from Al Ain to the airport in Abu Dhabi. In 1976, four years after the founding of your congregation in Carl's living room, ECC Abu Dhabi had grown by this point. Leon, by that time, had moved to Dubai. Carl had moved here. Leon had begun our church, and Carl wrote a letter to Leon saying, I praise the Lord for the way in which the idea of bringing a pastor has been taken up by the brethren here in Abu Dhabi. They're concerned, and understandably so, about the size of the undertaking, but I've come to see it as a tremendous step ahead for the work here along the coast. So Carl Sherbeck at that point was paving the way for Herb Lyon to arrive the next year and uh, several others after him. And in that same letter, Carl said to Leon, Leon, we've heard that you're going to be leaving this summer. We'd love to invite you and the family over for a Friday if you can do that before you leave. Would you be able to come over and speak to both meetings on a Friday and spend the day with us as a family? So you get a sense of the close friendship and the partnership that existed between our two congregations from the very beginning. And the same, of course, is true today. Your pastor, Aubrey, has been a particular encouragement to me and my ministry. And not only, not only me and my ministry, but that of several of the other pastors here uh, ministering in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, his scholarship, his obvious commitment to sound doctrine, his personal integrity. Um, and then there's his personal history as a rock star in India <laughs> that strikes so many of us as intriguing and out of character. Well, may our partnership continue for another 50 years. That's our prayer. You know, from the beginning, faithful preaching characterized your church. Even before the beginning, actually, I learned. Four years before ECC was established, Pat Kennedy, the founding medical doctor and the team leader at Oasis Hospital, wrote a letter to Leon Blosser on a lovely sunny Sunday afternoon, November 3, 1968, And he said, this morning, Carl spoke very well, simply and plainly, to a room full of Arabs and station folk. Carl was preaching in Arabic. Last Sunday, Pat Kennedy continued, the chapel was filled three times as Fuad Akkad of the Bible Society, thrilled us all again with his good Arabic messages. So from the earliest days, exposition, like we were just hearing about from Cam, was appreciated and even expected in the evangelical churches in this nation. Of course, Pastor Cam carried the torch then for 25 years, faithful, laboring in the original languages, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, over the years in, uh, in Dubai, there have been a number of folk who moved from Abu Dhabi and came to Dubai and joined our church. And I've had, I've had the privilege of doing many of their membership interviews. And on a number of occasions, I've, in conversation with new people coming to us, heard testimonies of people who were converted through your witness and particularly under Cam's preaching. I'll never forget hearing Ziad Webe's testimony. Um, In the year 2010, he came to you from an Orthodox uh, Lebanese background, and he told me the first sermon, and I quote, I just felt touched. There was a change. I got to know Cam Aronson. I began to grow as a Christian. Years later, Ziadwebe was a very valuable deacon for us in our church. So you helped us by proclaiming the truth and nurturing him spiritually, and then he came to us and was a biblical officer in our church. Uh, Just earlier today at a wedding, I was talking to Ilsam Park over here, who is a member of our church now and was once a member of your church. And uh, I, I asked him, Ilsam, how would you characterize Cam's preaching? And uh, Ilsam is a man of very few words. But he said his message was quite straight. And uh, I was struck, Cam, during your talk, uh, you said you have to have straight teaching. And that's exactly how he characterized your ministry. He, he, his message was quite straight. Preaching is the key for building the church that you have become over the last 50 years. But preaching is not the only key. You know, the church itself is a key in proclaiming and defending the gospel. So there's preaching, and there's the church. Consider that by turning with me to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Just pull it up on your phone. Chapter 3, verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, 14. While you're turning there, I think a lot of people today think that the Bible talks about salvation and the Bible says a lot about the Christian life. But on the question of how we do church, how we should order our churches, The Bible is largely silent. There's not much there about church, and so we're free to make it up as we go along, whatever works or whatever culture dictates. But has God given us guidance on the church? And does it make a difference for the defense and proclamation of the gospel? Look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. The Apostle Paul, speaking to Timothy, says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things, referring to the letter of 1 Timothy, I'm writing you these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So there is guidance in the New Testament on how we should order our churches, how we should conduct ourselves, That's why Paul wrote this letter. Anyway, in the event that he was delayed from getting to Ephesus, Timothy and the congregation would know how they ought to behave, what they ought to do when they get together on the Lord's Day. Friends, the reason it matters so much, what we do when we gather as churches, is because God lives among us. What does it say here? Paul calls the churches God's household. household. That is his family the church of the living God. That's not a denomination. That's not a building. No, it's a real live assembly of genuine Christians. God lives among His people, especially in their public worship. So when you sing, when you hear God's Word preached and read, when you observe baptism in the Lord's Supper, there he is among you, especially, personally present. God is in the house. I mean, haven't you experienced that, even in recent weeks? God warming your heart through the ministry of his gathered, praying people. I mean, we could just stay home, I guess. I think that's become more fashionable in recent years. More popular to do church on TV, or maybe the internet, or maybe the metaverse. I agree, though, with Martin Luther who said, at home, in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. Friends, you know, virtual church can never do that. We need each other. We need the regular assembly, and all the more is the day approaching. So if you are a member of the family, then you must be a part of the household. You must show up at family mealtime. So he calls this family the pillar and foundation of truth in verse 15. Those are interesting architectural terms. Pillar, foundation. It's as, as though you, the members of ECC Abu Dhabi, are holding up the truth somehow, displaying it, guarding it, So preaching the gospel brings life, and the church displays that life to the watching world. You can think of it kind of like this. If the gospel is the diamond, the church is the prongs which display the diamond in the shining ring, showcasing it, holding it up. So how must you do that in your congregation? How are you going to protect and defend the gospel and hold it up for the glory of God? Well, I came up with just a few ways to run past you this evening. First, protect the truth by expecting the faithful preaching of God's Word. If your pastor is not preaching faithfully out of the text, then get another one who will. Friends, when you join the church, you are agreeing to protect and guard the gospel in that place for as long as the Lord has you there. Do you remember in Galatians 1, when Paul is astonished at what's happening in that church because false teaching had crept in? And it's interesting what Paul does in that letter. He doesn't rebuke the pastor. He doesn't rebuke a presbytery or a synod or a general assembly. To whom does Paul address Galatians chapter 1? The congregation. He addresses the entire church for turning from the gospel and for putting up with false teaching. He calls them, you foolish Galatians. You know, Paul expects everyone in the assembly to know the truth and to lovingly expect it. Not just the pastor, not just the elders, the assembly, the entire congregation. Which is why, aside from the Bible, what is the most important document in the life of your church? It's your statement of faith. Have you read that recently? Do you understand your statement of faith? Friends, expect and insist upon faithful teaching that lines up with Scripture and that is in line with your statement of faith. That's the first one. The second way for you to be a pillar and buttress of truth is this. Protect the truth by joyfully submitting to your elders. Joyfully submitting to your elders. Uh, Over in Dubai, we've been praying for you guys um, irregularly in our pastoral prayers on Sunday for years now, uh, along with the other congregations here. And we have been aware of the fact that there has been this natural and healthy progression taking place over the years at ECC Abu Dhabi. So, Cam established you on biblical foundations from 1990 to 2015... Jeremy came in, Jeremy Rennie, who wrote the book on elders, and he led you through recognizing qualified ones, now you're more closely aligned with the New Testament pattern that we see in the book of Acts, where churches were led, not by one, but by a plurality of pastors or elders, as we see in Acts 14, 23. Paul and Barnabas, you know, they'd, they'd planted churches, and it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What's interesting to me is that these were relatively new churches that had been established by Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14. And yet God raised up qualified men in those assemblies. So four years into it, four years into being led by elders, I wonder, how's it going? You know, Hebrews says to church members, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. That's an interesting aspect of the job description of an elder. Keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Do you know that the day is coming when the men who have been recognized by your church as elders will one day stand before the Lord? So, obey your leaders. Submit to them. In Pastor Jeremy's book, he wrote, Not Pastor so-and-so said it, and so I believe it. As though the pastor himself is the source of authority? No. But rather, I've been taught that this is the Word of God, and pastor so-and-so has explained it clearly, and my conscience is bound to obey. So, a leader's authority resides not in himself, but only insofar as his ministry is consistent with the Word of God, as it is preached and applied and counseled. So, how are you doing, brothers and sisters, in submitting to the leadership of your elders. You know there's an incentive for you to do that well. Hebrews says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So I take it that gloomy, discouraged leaders don't help anyone. So pray that your elders would be happy. Pray that they would be joyful, that when they come to their elders' meetings, they would have a sense of expectancy and enthusiasm, and that you would contribute to their joy, all for the glory of God. Here's a third way for you to uh, be a pillar and buttress, you know, supporting the truth of the gospel here in Abu Dhabi. Protect the truth by working hard on Sundays. Working hard on Sundays. The reason I say that is because I think many evangelicals are being taught just to show up on Sundays. and and passively receive some sort of religious service or inspiring entertainment. But friends, holding up the truth involves hard work. And very practically, it means going to bed earlier the night before so that you can be alert on Sunday morning. It means reading and praying through the sermon text before it's preached on the Sunday. It means keeping a Bible open in front of you so that you can follow along and test that what he's saying is what this says. Take notes to remain alert, listen intently, expectantly, and pray. Pray for yourself. On Sunday mornings, pray for other people in the assembly, and by all means, pray for the preacher. Phil Rankin observed congregations generally get what they pray for. So, on Sundays, come to work. It's not just the paid professionals. You know, as a member, it's not like you're the passenger on the bus, and the elders, the small group leaders, the pastors, they're the ones driving the bus, and you don't really have a job. You're just a passive passenger. No, Jim Boyce said today the churches, more than anything else, resemble a football game played in a large stadium. There are 22 men on the field who badly need a rest, and there are 80,000 spectators in the stands who badly need some exercise. So let God's people, all of you, be in the game. Church is a place where Christians go to work. So what is your job in the gathered assembly on Sunday? Talking to your neighbor beside you? Helping other people understand God's Word? Inviting them over afterward? Having conversations that are always spiritual in nature? Sing? Sing with gusto. Just pretend you're singing under the shower. Or show up early for church. That may be the biggest miracle of all. Greet newcomers, get to know them, attend to their needs. Friends, it's not the minister's meeting, right? It's your meeting if you're a member of the church. And here's a fourth, a fourth way for you to protect the truth. It's by taking the ordinances seriously. Taking the ordinances seriously. I mean baptism and the Lord's Supper here's why I say that. What is a church? How would you define it if someone asked you on the street? Well, a church is not a building. A church is not a synod or an ecclesiastical hierarchy in Rome or Cyprus or somewhere. No, a church is an assembly of believers in covenant together marked off by the right preaching of the Word of God and the right administration of Baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's what a church is an assembly of believers covenanted together, bounded, set off from the world by the baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, who has the authority to administer the ordinances? Not a Christian conference, not a family doing family worship in the quiet of their home, not a small group from your church. Your statement of faith is actually very clear. I checked it earlier today. We believe that water baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two ordinances administered by the church. So a church is more than simply Christians in the plural. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are actually what constitute a church. Bobby Jameson wrote, the ordinances make it possible to point to something and say, church rather than only pointing to many somethings and saying Christians. You know, there's a difference between a collection of Christians who meet together in the produce section of the grocery store and a church that is set apart by baptism and the Lord's Supper and the right preaching of the Word of God. So by participating in these ordinances, you draw a line between the church and the world. And that line is good for the gospel of Jesus Christ in Abu Dhabi. Because you become like a city set on a hill. You see, the gospel is audible in preaching, but it becomes visible in the life of the church, and especially in baptism in the Lord's Supper. So, be a pillar, be a buttress for the truth. Hold up and protect the truth by emphasizing and supporting the administration of the gospel ordinances. Here's a fifth way. Protect the gospel by taking membership seriously, taking it seriously, because church is not a spectator event. It's just not. I think we've been led to think that more and more in our modern individualistic societies. It's not just an event that we attend. In the New Testament, the church is more like a family that one joins, who gathers regularly, and who participates in a family meal. Look, I admit, by itself, Membership is just a skeleton. But the flesh and the blood circulation, well, they're the spirit-wrought fellowship and self-sacrificial love that mark us. True church unity is not because we have shared interests or shared ethnicity or shared hobbies or situation in life. No, we love because he first loved us. But in addition to this dynamic fellowship that we see in the book of Acts, we also see in the New Testament, churches were marked by a biblical order or a polity, a government. So people could be put out of the fellowship through discipline, 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18. So people could be put into the fellowship through the exercise of the keys of the kingdom given to the churches. You know, when I came to Dubai almost 18 years ago, uh, we had no membership. We didn't know who we were. I mean, it was a free-for-all of excited people, good-hearted people who showed up on Fridays back then, and as our membership grew, so did our sense of community, so did our sense of fellowship. It sharpened the visible witness for Christ in Dubai, and it helped us to get to know each other. In fact, we started praying for one another. So, We began praying for one page of the membership directory every day, and over the course of a month, we would pray for every member of the church, especially in a church with so many nationalities, so many expectations as ours, right? It's vitally important to clarify the nature of our commitments to one another. Like, What does it mean that we're committed to one another in fellowship? I mean, where do you spell that out in your church, the corporate commitment that you have one another? Is there a document In the life of your church that spells these things out? Well, yeah, that's your church covenant that you affirm on a regular basis. So, aside from the Bible, the most important documents in the life of a church are what you believe, the statement of faith, and how you promise to live, your church covenant. Friends, Christianity is certainly personal, but it's by no means private. It's exceedingly public, actually. The Christian life. Is congregationally shaped. Committing to the church actually enhances your witness to the world outside. Jesus himself said it, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. You know the guy who led me to the Lord 27 years ago, Mark Dever? He once wrote this on commitment to the church. He said, we move from being pampered customers to being joyous proprietors. We stop arriving late and complaining we don't get everything we want. Instead, we arrive early and try to help others get what they need. Isn't it amazing that you and I can be a part of the body of Christ? The church is the precious colony of heaven. What did Paul say to the Ephesian elders? He said, be shepherds of the flock of God, which he bought with his own blood. Friends, if the church as Cam was telling us, if the church means this much to God, that He purchased her, He redeemed her with His own blood in the person of His Son, then how much should the church mean to us? Now, I wonder, is there anyone here this evening who is not a part of the church? In fact, who's not a follower of Christ? You know, Jesus purchased the church with His own blood. So, if you're not a Christian... Understand this before you leave us this evening. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. Or, to say it another way, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do you understand that the transcendent God of the universe, through whom the world was created, in space and in time, came in and took on human flesh and became one of us? He lived a life just like you and me, and he suffered and he died. And in his shameful crucifixion, he bore the penalty, he bore the punishment in the place of anyone who would ever turn and trust in him. So my non-Christian friend, what is it tonight that would hold you back from repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Christ and then following Jesus in fellowship with all of us in the local churches represented in this room? Believe in Christ. Enter into the joy that we've come to know in him. And then here's the last way for you to protect the gospel, to be a a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's simply by this, by being vigilant. I want you to be vigilant. Do you remember Paul's sober warning to the Galatians? Paul said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What's interesting to me is that he said, "You're doing this so quickly, Prince. It doesn't necessarily take long for you to lose all that we've been celebrating tonight." Consider that. I mean, think of all the twists and turns over the last fifty years of ECC Abu Dhabi, all the way back to Carl Sherbeck's living room, up through the recent pastors of past pastors of Cam and Jeremy and Aubrey. And here today, I doubt that your church has ever been more mature. I doubt that it's ever been more united, that it's ever been stronger. It takes years for a church to develop that kind of maturity and Christlikeness. It takes seasons of patiently sowing the seed and reaping. But Martin Luther observed, one person with mad ideas may destroy, in a short time, all that has been built up over many years by many true ministers laboring night and day." So as one who pastors a church that's a lot like yours, let me just give you this one warning. I believe the greatest danger that our churches face in our part of the world is lowest common denominator ministry. Lowest common denominator. Here's what I mean. Watering down the church. Watering down the teaching. Lowering the expectations. All because we're multicultural? All because we're marked by exceptional diversity? No. The worst thing you can do is dumb down the doctrine. Avoid the hard edges of theological truth. I know there's a surface plausibility to that kind of thinking. After all, people are coming to us from all over, and many of them are immature and from various church backgrounds. Maybe you think we need to keep diverse people on the same page, so we must lighten up on the quality of the teaching to keep them unified. But let me just pass this on from your slightly older sister church in Dubai. One thing we learned from the last 50 years, and I think we learned it with a little more difficulty and a little more heartache than you have experienced, is this. Lowest common denominator ministry promotes strife and feebleness not unity and strength. It does not protect unity to lower the common denominator on your teaching. Friends, be vigilant to protect the gains that you now enjoy. So in conclusion, what does it look like here in our UAE context for a church to be a pillar and buttress of the truth? Let me give you one example from uh, north of here in Dubai. You know, during the 1990s, uh, one of our church members was arrested. It was Englishman Ray Amy. Uh, He was a member of ECCD. He ran the book table. He was uh, actively involved in distributing literature wherever he could. In January of 1993, Amy went to the Dubai Creek, and uh, that's where the Iranian dows were anchored. And he recalled, I had a bag of Farsi New Testaments in my hand. And when he saw three Iranian sailors sitting there, he greeted them and spoke to them in Farsi and offered them copies of the scripture, which they eagerly took. But he said a plainclothes cop wearing a dishdash looking for stolen TVs showed up at the wrong time. And so Amy was charged and convicted with promoting another religion in a Muslim country. And he confessed in court, Yes, I gave them a New Testament." Amy's Emirati attorney objected unsuccessfully that the Quran says, it is good for Muslims to read the Christian book. Well, the sentencing judge engaged three Muslim scholars to actually translate the New Testament from Farsi to Arabic in order to complete a thorough investigation. He didn't realize that there were Arabic translations available in Dubai. And as a result, uh, Amy said that his court file swelled to 700 sides of A4 paper and three Muslim clerics became intimately acquainted with the New Testament. Well, eventually, Amy was sentenced to six months in prison. Our church wonderfully rallied in support of this man. At the Jamira prison... In those days, there were three visiting times per week. And uh, Amy recalled there was always a queue of people waiting to see me, bringing words of encouragement, telling me they were praying for me. The first to visit was the pastor of the church. It's interesting. Uh, Amy, he, he related this to me 30 years after it happened, and still vivid in his memory. Did he recall particular encouragement from the Indian brothers or several of the single ladies Most of the other prisoners never had visitors. He said they had brought shame on their families. There was no one to say, we love you. Ray Amy received 700 letters in eight weeks. Most of the letters were filled with Scripture. He said the prison staff were putting in for overtime just so they could read all my mail. And then just before Christmas, after spending some eight weeks in prison, he was released early for immediate deportation. And when the prison guard met Amy to transport him, he asked, you're the guy who gets all the visitors? Well, paid for, the church paid for Amy's return ticket to London. He was transported uh, on a particular day by prison bus, accompanied only by the driver and a police officer. And when he arrived at the airport in Dubai, the whole church was assembled to see him off. The police officer got off the bus and asked one church member, what are you all doing here? Ray is our brother. We've come to see him off and say goodbye. We love him. The officer replied, I've never seen anything like this before. Who was it out there at the entrance to the airport to say goodbye to Ray? Well, that was the household of God. It was the church of the living God. That was the pillar and buttress of truth. None of those people are here. Some of them have passed on. I think all of them have moved away. You know, none of us here knows how long we will be here, right? Paul said, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. You know Cam Aronson? He's uh, 15 years older than I am. Like me, Cam was 38 years old when he began pastoring here. And I began pastoring there. And I remember when he left in 2015, uh, he called me to say goodbye and he told me he'd been diagnosed with cancer. It just so happened that Around that time, I was marking ten years of ministry at ECCD. And on that occasion, I told our church, and I quote, yesterday Cam told me that he'd been diagnosed with cancer. He announced it to his church today. We hope it's treatable. We hope that God gives him long life. And just look at God's faithfulness to Cam in the last seven or eight years. And look at God's faithfulness to you over the last 50 years and to us over the last 50 years. Friends, let's let this 50th anniversary be a marker for us, both as churches and individually. And a reminder that Jesus said, night is coming when no one can work. So let's do the work of the one who sent us here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you indeed are great in your faithfulness as we sang earlier. Lord, we see your faithfulness so evidently in the congregations represented in this room, in your sovereign hand of providence over ECC Abu Dhabi over the last 50 years. We see it in our brother Cam and the way you've preserved him for now almost eight years. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We pray that you would stoke the flames of affection as we reflect still more on your goodness in the life of this congregation. For Jesus' sake, amen.